I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to On the Continent, your definitive guide to the week in European football. I'm Dotson Adebayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Jonathan Johnson. On this edition... Is it over for Napoli's defence of its Serie A title? And is the race for the Champions League the real story in Italy this season? Also, Donnarumma, do we still raise him? He dropped another clangor at the weekend. Do we still believe the hype? And after the fatal stabbing of a football fan in Nantes last Saturday, where will the crowd trouble in French football all end? Andy, I think... Well, I'm not a betting man, but should I put money on Napoli not winning the Serie A title? I'm not sure you get very much back from it, such as their position at the moment. I mean, as we speak now, they're in fifth place in in Serie A. Um, They are a long way behind Inter at the top, 11 points behind Inter, having lost 3-0 at home to them at the Maradona last last weekend. And to me, it's, it's, it's felt like a very early from a very early point in the season that they're not going to repeat, that they're not going to be able to repeat. And that's not just because of the strength of Inter. But there, there was definitely a bit of a last stand feel about this. Not just because it was the first home game of Walter Mazzari, not just because they were playing the leaders, but Napoli gave it everything they could. I think 3-0 was actually slightly flattering to, to Inter, even though they ended up in good control of the game in the end. But this was the game where... Lots of people from the outside started to say, okay, Jan Zoma's a really good goalkeeper and Inter have lucked out on on getting him because um, there was a a little bit of 
I don't know if cynicism's the the, the right word, but he, he wasn't um, welcomed warmly initially. I think um, people still remember what Andre Anana did last season and, and, and were missing him a little bit. Zama is a very different sort of goalkeeper as well, but a very good goalkeeper and Inter is starting to see that and they really started to see that in this game. But the way Napoli was just eventually picked off by Inter, it did feel like the the end of something. You know, there was a gap in quality. There was a gap in focus and intention. And ever since that bit at the end of the first half where Hakan Chalunulu scored the, the opener, it felt like Inter were on top of it. So, JJ, is top four the best that Napoli can aim for? I think it's definitely got to be the aim uh, at this moment in time, you know, and that's what the, what Mazzari will probably try to, to to rally his troops around. I, I just think it, it feels like such a, a self-inflicted uh, sort of damage limitation exercise now for Napoli, because if I recall correctly, De Laurentiis had basically hinted that Rudy Garcia was the wrong appointment for Napoli before he'd even parted ways with the club, which created this strange dynamic, especially for, you know, in a squad that's been defending the title. And I don't think it's that, you know, Napoli have become a, a, a poorer group of players overnight. I mean, I think obviously everybody knows uh, sort of what they're about a lot better now, uh, especially after last season's success. And there's always going to be um, that sort of decompression period uh, in a team, especially when sort of, um, you know, they're not expected to have success. They go on, uh, you know, and sort of triumph against the odds, uh, you know, many would have seen. And, you know, it's, it, it's yeah, it just feels like, you know, De Laurentiis, one, made a mistake in appointing Garcia in the first place, which I might add was sort of greeted with quite a bit of surprise over here in France. Uh, and then two, uh, sort of, you know, made it even worse by coming out and admitting publicly that it was a mistake before separating with him. And then, you know, bafflingly, uh, you know, goes back to Mazzari, who obviously has uh, previous with Napoli. Uh, and it just, you know, it's created this massive sort of underwhelming feeling where Napoli should still really be sort of, you know, riding on, you know, the crest of uh, last season's success in Italy. Uh, you know, they haven't done that badly in the in the Champions League and could still make the knockout uh, round in the final games. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I think top four and getting back into the Champions League definitely has to be the aim. But there is still plenty to play for for this Napoli side, I think. I think that's it. <clears throat> it's a feeling that what there is to play for is a lot less than last season, even if there is still something to play for. And really, I think that's something that's been on Aurelio De Laurentiis' mind a lot. Because you look at this week where they had the Gazzetta della Sport Awards and De Laurentiis, for the first time, actually, um, as Spalletti got the Luciano Spalletti got the Coach of the Year Award, said, yeah, we really owe him. He had a massive hand in this. It's the first time, really, he's come out in public and said, A, thank you, and B, this guy had a huge influence on it. And, you know, he explained, look, look we lost a, a lot of key players last summer, and yet, you know, he, he, he managed to focus the team and integrate the new players and all the rest of it. And you're like, yeah, that's absolutely right. And so we've been focusing on the coaches that they have at the moment and they've ha that they've had this season. But now it's, Almost, uh, it's it's almost after the denouement of this season's title chase. It's a already. It's it's a little bit like they're looking back on what they've lost, on what that glorious period was. And so, as JJ says, they may still have those players. They don't have the coach. They don't have the coach who created the the magic. And even if Matsari, who has 
been away from Napoli for a decade and not done an enormous amount in between, does a good job. I think his good job would be getting them into a Champions League spot at this point. Whether they've come to terms with not retaining the title or not, they're not necessarily going to have that top four finish. Um, It won't be a walk in the park for them with Roma certainly certainly turning things around now and leapfrogging over them for the um, top four position that that you would expect a, a title contender or at least a a former title defenders, I should say, rather than the title contenders, should be aiming for at least top four, but they, they might struggle to get it. Well, that's it. You have to adjust that new reality. And that's what Napoli have to do now. But Roma coming up on the rails. I mean, if we look back at the opening weeks of this season, JJ, it didn't look likely at all. And most people were talking about Mourinho third season syndrome, wondering if he would last the season. Now there's perhaps a look at even extending his stay there. Um, I mean, they have become pretty good in the last couple of months at sort of just grinding out results, haven't they? Oh, yeah, they've gone back to to doing sort of what Mourinho does best. And I think, you know, it really threw them when, you know, towards the end of last season and unfortunately just before, uh, you know, a major European final, you know, you sort of had the stories surfacing that Mourinho was likely to leave. He was expected to come to Paris and and uh, link up with uh, Luis Campos. Obviously, we know that didn't happen, but it seemed like Mourinho was preparing himself to sort of go out on a high. That high didn't come, uh, you know, and then suddenly the exit didn't materialize either. So it's it's almost like he's had that period to sort of eat to you know his sort of disappointment and now he's sort of focusing on on getting back to basics and doing you know what his teams generally tend to to do best and that's not necessarily playing sparkling football but it is sort of results based football and something else that i think has impacted certainly the champions league race in serie a this season is the fact that I think Juventus are much better than many people expected i don't think anyone expected them to be quite as I'm not going to say disastrous, but as sort of underwhelming as they were last season. But, you know, they genu- genuinely look at this moment in time, despite what is quite a, a limited squad or group of players, that, you know, they could be turned into potential sort of at least title challengers, uh, you know, by Allegri, given sort of the form that they've managed to put together and, the, the you know, the proximity between them and, uh, and top spot at this moment in time. If Napoli don't get that fourth spot, though, it will be a disaster, won't it? Oh, well, it won't be good, no doubt about it. And there will be more scrutiny of De Laurentiis and the choices he made because he all but admitted this week that, um, you know, Spalletti saved him last year when he lost those big players. And, um, you know, in terms of the managerial appointments this season, as um, JJ said, he's, he's, he's tried to do it on the cheap twice, which is which has cost him. And then you look at, you know, just the dynamic between the players, the way that Ozymen's been upset, the way that Kvaratskeli has been upset, the fact that Zielinski is still being linked with a move away. There's this feeling that the way that De Laurentiis makes the players valued or doesn't make the players valued after everything they did for the club last season is, is still a problem. It's, it's not just the coach. It's something else lingering at the club. Whereas if you look at, Really, the atmosphere at Roma, for example, and you were talking about them coming up on the outside, is set by the coach, not the president. Because I I think in every little thing that you see Roma do, everything 
Mourinho is in it. He's got to be. Yeah, but I think, you know, you look at the stands, you look at the fact that the stands are full, that's Mourinho. Yep. You look at the fact that every decision that's given against them or for them, and they think there should be a further sanction, they take turns to swarm the referee. It's, it's like a cult. It genuinely is. <laughs> and I find that remarkable. And what it has enabled them to do in recent weeks, when they've had some big players out, so I'm thinking of uh, Lorenzo Pellegrini, the captain, and when they've had Lukaku not scoring as regularly as he did in, in the first part of the season, there's there's been a, a little drop-off, although there's no real problem with his form. You've had Dybala looking fragile and that, them having, having to manage them. But then you've had Asmoon stepping up. You had Rasmus Christensen come on the, the weekend and, and change things about as as substitute. And Mourinho himself is doing everything he needs to do. Like, you know, you look at before the game against Sassuolo at the weekend where he said, you know, the referee wasn't emotionally mature enough to handle the occasion um, because he was only 31. Uh, bear in mind, the first time I saw Mourinho's Roma play live, he, a nearly 60-year-old and now 60-year-old, of course, man, uh, marched onto the pitch, snatched the ball off the referee and booted it into the crowd. And he's talking about people not being able to emotionally handle an occasion. I mean, the guts to be able to come out and say that, I think, is is amazing. But he he put that pressure on and then Roma got all the rub of the green they wanted afterwards. Will they get the rub of the green for the rest of the season? Uh, JJ, can you see them doing... Uh, well, achieving what they haven't achieved for four years now in the Champions League. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Mourinho will do his best to, to ensure that they, uh, you know, sort of get maximum consideration for, for, for that sort of thing. But I think Mourinho teams generally tend to sort of build in momentum. And if we feel that they're coming up on the rails now, I think that they'll be a lot stronger sort of over the back half of the season. So they're definitely... Uh, you know, here to stay, uh, I, I think. And, you know, he will hope that he can sort of replicate the the kind of continental form that we saw from them uh, last season. But, I mean, the other thing that's really interesting about the whole sort of managerial situation and, um, you know, we were talking earlier about Napoli, uh, but, you know, also there would have been speculation about Roma before Mourinho uh, ended up staying on. And that's that for the first time in a long time, there are actually some very talented young prospects who could be available for top Italian clubs in the very near future. You know, you've got Farioli doing a fantastic job at Nice and it seems like Thiago Motta uh, doing wonders with Bologna might also soon be ready for sort of a similar posting of uh, the kind of Napoli and, uh, and and Roma caliber jobs. So, you know, it is certainly, uh, you know, a fascinating uh, sort of topic to, to keep an eye on one of the subplots uh, of this Serie A season along with Mourinho's Roma. Moving on, but let's keep one foot in Italy, although it should be the left boot of Europe in Italy, shouldn't it? And then let's let's try and find a bridge between Italy and France. That bridge, JJ, is called Gigi Donnarumma. Does that make sense? Have you ever crossed that bridge? Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Obviously, a Naples-born Italian goalkeeper applying his trade in Paris, having just discussed Napoli's, uh, you know, hopes at salvaging something from the season. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it's certainly a, a, a bridge that's been crossed one too many times in uh, in recent <laughs> weeks and months. Well, I think we should be talking about more about his right boot than his left boot Ooh. when it when it when it comes to this weekend, right, JJ? 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, it feels like we're going from sort of one gaff to another uh, with, with Donnarumma at the moment. But uh, sort of going back to, to Dotton's question, I mean, it was difficult not to sort of be caught up in the hype around Donnarumma after the success of Euro 2020, because obviously he played such a heroic role in that. Uh, and expectation was sky high when he arrived because, you know, this is the top top quality goalkeeper or seemingly top quality goalkeeper coming in on a free transfer. So it seemed like a real coup for PSG at the time. You know, they had a couple of players performing really well. Uh, Wijnaldum as well was another one of them who, you know, excelled at those Euros. Um, and sort of since then, um, you know, I think what has become very, very obvious is that by traditional standards, so in terms of sort of blocking shots, you know, having excellent reflexes, you know, getting a strong hand to to shots to, to keep them out that you wouldn't necessarily expect other goalkeepers to save. You know, he is very good at that. But especially since Luis Enrique has come in, we are starting to see sort of the limitations of Donnarumma sort of by modern goalkeeping standards. And by that, I mean sort of, you know, modern goalkeepers now are expected to sort of contribute towards build-up play or to at least be adept with the, the ball at their feet. Donnarumma doesn't have that in his locker at all. Now, okay, we could debate, you know, this weekend's... Um, you know, error uh, as, you know, sort of an error of judgment, charging off his line, sort of Anthony Lopez-esque uh, and getting himself sent off. But the issue is it's not just sort of an isolated incident. You have him gifting Monaco a goal just a couple of weeks ago when he was closed down by Balogun and basically passed it out to Minamino to, to equalise for Monaco. Thankfully for PSG, they managed to outscore Monaco on that night. But, uh, you know, it's not the only gaffe as well. You've got the high-profile error against Real Madrid that sent PSG out in the round of 16 a couple of years ago. And let's not forget, Donnarumma dislodged Keylor Navas, you know, a proven Champions League winner. Yes, okay, a veteran. And he had a bit of a shaky performance for PSG at home to Manchester City in the first, uh, first leg of a Champions League semi-final. But still, uh, you know, I don't really feel like Donnarumma over the period of time that he's now been in Paris has sort of justified one, usurping Navas in the way that he did, and two, sort of being held up as this, you know, elite goalkeeper, which, you know, I think was maybe falsely bestowed on him after a very good Euro. And a very early start to his career. I think it's such a un-Italian thing to have a goalkeeper come into a first team, especially at a club like Milan at, at 16 years old, isn't it? So uh, I think... You know, it's, it's easy to forget he's he's as young as he is still. And maybe he's still got time to, to learn, develop. In terms of what he would need for the elite level with his feet, I think it, it feels like quite an ask. It feels like quite a, a long way to go. And you can see its effect is the rest of the PSG back four as well. You know, it's reminded you. I think if you go back to the, the Champions League game against uh, Newcastle and the, the opening goal where Marquinhos gives the, gives the ball away, I mean, that is a direct result of the lack of confidence that they have in, in Donnarumma. In fact, they shouldn't really be playing a, a, about a, a, the back at all like that. I, I guess the biggest problem for, for Donnarumma that came out of this weekend's game at Love, JJ, is not the fact that he was sent off because, yes, it was a bad foul. Yes, he looked clumsy. Yes, it was a professional foul. He's going to be um, banned for the next two games, by the way. And he got sent off after 10 minutes. 10 yeah. minutes. Yeah, that's 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 right, which, especially in the away game, made it very difficult for them. They did win the game in the end, but they really had to work to do it. The, the thing that's more damaging to Donnarumma is the fact that 
Arnaut Tenas, his uh, replacement, a uh, young Spanish goalkeeper, 22 years old, who is, is not exactly a household name, but Luis Enrique um, petitioned hard for him to come in as the reserve goalkeeper. He looked the part. And now he's got two games to prove that he's more the sort of goalkeeper that they're looking for, hasn't he? Yeah, he does. And I think, uh, you know, what must be most worrying for Donnarumma is that Tenas, uh, you know, despite having had to be very patient for his opportunity, he has been taught a style of, of play that Donnarumma, you know, can't replicate. You know, he is at ease with the ball at his feet. That that doesn't change the fact that he also made some fantastic saves against Leav, because they quite easily could have equalised or taken the lead. Uh, you know, it was a couple of really sensational saves, uh, you know, that prevented that. I think he made seven saves since coming on uh, to replace Donnarumma. Uh, so, yeah, it was, well, he didn't replace Donnarumma to fill in for Donnarumma. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, it is massively... Um, going to be a telling period now uh you know i think donnarumma unfortunately for psg is going to be under huge pressure going into that away game against Borussia dortmund in the champions league which is uh you know basically make or break for psg in europe this season uh no uh no dembele so they're already up against it zaya emery out injured ruiz are now joining him injured as well so you know it's going to be really interesting to see how Donnarumma sort of picks himself up after that, but also if Tenas can, you know, sort of replicate the same level of performance that we saw from him in that game. Because if he does, then, you know, there is some real competition, uh, you know, with uh, Donnarumma for that, uh, for that starting position. You've got a feel for Donnarumma though, because this is something like a Shakespearean tragedy. You know, you're a goalkeeper. Uh, once upon a time, a goalkeeper was a player that played, with their hands rather than their yeah. feet once upon a time, but things have changed in midstream almost for him. So the point where he was being hailed as one of the greatest goalkeepers in the world, uh, the um, after saving pens during the mm. Euro uh, finals against England, at that point, he was still on the cusp of being a great goalkeeper because he stopped shots. But there, there was... There was still a question even then, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I think because his moment arrived so quickly, I think you you go back before that, and and he'd almost lived a career before that Euro final, not only because he started at 16, but because, of course, he'd not once but twice got into this position with Milan where it looked like he wasn't going to sign a contract extension. The second time he didn't sign a contract extension. So... He was, um, he he was chided as a, a money grabber by Milan fans, and that's a lot to put up with. I think for any player from their own fans, but especially at at that age, like he's been through a lot. I think that's that's worth underlining as well. And of course, when he went back to Milan with PSG this season, they still haven't forgiven him. They're still throwing notes with um, fake notes with Donnarumma's face on. I mean, so, it's it's funny as well because there's a lot of crossover as well. You know, he was sort of followed by Mike Mignon uh, in Milan who hasn't, uh, you know, has, has helped Milan fans get over the loss of Donnarumma much, quickly, much quicker than expected. And now there's suddenly rumours that PSG might look to bring Mignon back because, of course, uh, you know, Mignon started out in, in PSG's youth academy. You had the, the break-in, the, the traumatic uh, sort of hostage situation with Donnarumma and his partner a few months ago or basically just before PSG started their preseason tour, which, you know, in terms of sort of his confidence and feeling at 
ease in Paris, you know, must have been very, uh, very difficult for him uh, to, to cope with as well. But it's, you know, if it does feel like, I mean, Andy might have been able to sense it when we watched uh, PSG against Dortmund together. But there just is this massive sort of lack of confidence towards a Donnarumma. And it's not just mm. Donnarumma, it's partly the defence as well. You can almost feel the stadium in its entirety sort of, you know, taking a sharp intake of breath when the ball is heading back towards Donnarumma because of this fear that something, you know, might go wrong uh, on the pitch. And the other thing that I should probably add into this because it's important context is that the PSG starting goalkeeper position and the general hierarchy of that position has always almost exclusively been problematic for PSG in the Qatari era, with the exception perhaps of around 18 months, two years maximum with, with Keylor Navas there. There was never ever one starting goalkeeper who was truly sort of considered head and shoulders above the rest and a natural uh, number one. There's always been this attempt to try and bring in players that can compete for that spot. Uh, you know, Emery tried it with you know with the likes of Kevin Trapp as well it's never quite worked out and it's become this fetish position it's crazy like there used to be real debates about sort of PSG when they were going to sort out the the goalkeeping situation because you've seen some very high quality goalkeepers come to Paris uh, and sort of be eaten up by the pressure that comes with that starting position I suppose that's been the thing though hasn't it with PSG during the QSI era that they've often gone for the biggest star rather than the, the the right one, and that that's something that Kylian Mbappe has, has has brought up, of, of of course, even if it is a little bit of Turkey voting for Christmas. I think when you look at the bits where they've felt most stable in the last decade plus, Kado Navas and probably Salvatore Sirigu, and you know those, especially Sirigu, is not a player who's really thought of as an elite level goalkeeper. But you look someone like him who just read the situation, who adapted really quickly, who learned French in the blink of an eye, which really helped in terms of communication with his defence, good personality. And then they decided they wanted a bigger name and turfed him out. And since then, it's a little bit like, it's a little bit like when Carlo Ancelotti left as coach. They got rid of something well. They, they sort of created a situation where they ended up getting rid of someone because there was a fracture of trust between him and Al-Khalifi. And then they end up spending ages looking for the person that they already got rid of. So that is the issue here. And it's why you've got to wonder if Arna Tenas could be a, a possible person to to work for PSG over the, 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 the next little while. One, because, as JJ says, he's more of a stylistic fit, but also because he's not a superstar. And I, I don't think, of all the positions where that doesn't matter, a goalkeeper is definitely one of those, isn't it? You, you just need stability. But isn't it the case, as far as I understand it, that Donnarumma is still the Italian number one? And I wonder whether that suggests that there is a different perception of Donnarumma in Italy than there is at PSG with his club. Well, I think part of that, going, going back to what JJ was saying, actually, about how he was, how he was succeeded uh, at, at Milan by, by Menon, who seemed better than before. I think... You look at the situation of David De Gea, another goalkeeper who's an amazing goalkeeper, but not the best with his feet. I think there's a bit of a comparison there, really, because if you look at David De Gea, he was quite young when he left Atletico Madrid. Straight after that, they had Thibaut Courtois, 
who obviously is not top of the pops with their fans now, having succeeded for, for Real Madrid, but was very popular at the time and made people forget about De Gea very quickly. And then you get a little bit after that and they've got Jan Oblak. So really, he's just... De Gea is a little speck in Atletico history. It's almost a curio that he played for, for, for them, really. And that definitely affected his status in terms of the national team as, as, as well. Because all the time, we've talked about this before, all the time that we in England felt that David De Gea was, if not the best goalkeeper in the world, he was pretty close. But no one in Spain felt that. No one in Spain felt that at all. And you already see, don't you, JJ, the conversation turning, especially with Vicario doing so well at Spurs. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, when you've got the likes of Gianluigi Buffon coming out to defend Donnarumma, you know, that hints at the fact that there is a debate, uh, you know, about how sort of legitimate Donnarumma's claims are at the starting goalkeeper position ahead of the Euros. Uh, you know, when, you know, Buffon himself has sampled how difficult it is, you know, he's made a couple of high profile mistakes in his time uh, in the French capital as well. That's not how you put it earlier on. Yeah, I mean he's he's no stranger to a to a fuck up or two, but I expect to be, I expect to have that one bleeped out. <laughs> just 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 pointing out the fact, but I'm glad that you brought in the support by Buffon because I mean that's what you need as a goalkeeper, isn't it? That you know whatever you think of Buffon. On well, you, level... you do you do need it, but you also don't need it because if Buffon's coming out to defend you, it means that he's got something to defend you from, and that criticism is is legit. Well, goalkeepers always have something to defend themselves from, but it's what the coach thinks that's the important thing, and what Luis Enrique has said. And I don't know what either of you make of this quote because he says, with regards to the sending off at the weekend of Donnarumma against Lavre, as you pronounce it, uh, the rest of us call it Le Havre. <laughs> uh, he says, Luis Enrique says, I'm the one who asks the goalkeeper to cover the space. Most of the time it goes well. When it doesn't, it's my problem. I think that is very generous of a coach to describe it like that. How, how else would he put it? Like, well, is, is he meant to sit there and go, yeah, he's, he's not my when, kind of goalkeeper and he's a massive problem for us? When Unana got sent off um, for Manchester United... Look at the picture of Ten Hag ignoring him as he's walking past him. That's how you react to it, if you're going to as a coach. But at the end of the day, he's got a point. If you've asked, the co if you've asked your goalkeeper to do a certain job and he does it and he gets sent off or he drops a clanger doing it, whose fault is it? Is it the goalie's fault? Whether it's his fault or not, I think he's really irrelevant. The question is, can he do the job that the team needs him to do? That's the question, isn't it? And the answer is no from you. And the answer is no from you, Jojo. No, he can't. And I think the answer will be no in his heart of hearts from Luis Enrique as well. You look at how many times he's had to come out and defend Donnarumma so far. You know, Luis Enrique is not going to change his style of play. Uh, and the only way that it's going to fully function is, you know, by having somebody who's more adept with the ball at uh, their feet. And that guy is not Donnarumma. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There is another story in France, a tragic story from France. We've talked previously about the crowd trouble that French football is experiencing, JJ, but it was taken to another level at the weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, very worrying uh, scenes in and around the, the, the game between Nantes and Nice, which ultimately saw Nice lose their unbeaten record in Ligue 1. We know they've had a fantastic uh, you know, de- defensive record so far this season. That finally came to an end with a, a defeat at Stade de la Bourgeois. But unfortunately, uh, you know, sort of the, the game and that event was overshadowed by what had happened outside uh, outside of the stadium. Uh, and basically, um, a, a supporter had been stabbed to, to death. And while the details were not initially too clear, it started to sort of become clearer in the last few days. And basically, a convoy of uh, sort of Ubers or taxi or ba- basically private hired cars taking uh, Nice fans to the Nantes Stadium uh, was basically set upon, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, a group of aggressive uh, home supporters and driving one of these Ubers happened to be a, a sort of mid-30s ex-convict who'd been in prison uh, for drug trafficking. Uh, and basically, it is this man who was then taken into police custody and charged with the, the fatal stabbing of the, of the supporter. Uh, you know, obviously another sort of black eye on French football in terms of, uh, you know, the, the league's image after another very ugly episode. You know, we saw the horrible scenes between Marseille and Lyon uh, a couple of months ago. We've had plenty of other examples as well. Uh, and now you've got the French government and the league coming out saying, well, we need to hand down, you know, bigger sanctions. And at this moment in time, the the sanction that's being handed down is that any sort of semi um, risky matches uh, between now and the winter break, because there is a winter break coming up in uh, in the French footballing calendar, uh, will not have uh, away supporters. Uh, but it feels like, you know, at this moment in time, especially you know, it's such a crucial juncture for for French football. They've they've got a lot of money riding on the the CVC um, private equity deal, uh, which is basically designed to not only sort of bail French clubs out of the trouble that was created by COVID and the collapse of the Media Pro deal, while they're looking for new domestic and international rights, but also to sort of strengthen um, the the product and make it more appealing moving forward, so that they can bridge the gap on the other top leagues. Top leagues, which I would add, France is coming back into. The reckoning for based on the recent uh, UEFA coefficient performances, 
uh, and and it feels like sort of you know there hasn't really been any consideration about this problem of violence that that has affected French football for a long long time. And I'm not saying it's limited to football. There are other examples, unfortunately, uh, you know, of this kind of thing happening in French society. We had one just you know very recently, uh, but it does seem like uh, you know sort of when it happens in French football, it brings it you know to to major sort of the the wider uh, public consciousness. Yeah, it's an understatement to say that it's not a good look. But as JJ points out, Andy, it, at this crucial time for French football, uh, when it struggled with lack of TV deals, etc., who, who would want to invest in this? You know what? I, I think before we even get to that, we, we have to talk about the, the, the social implications of it. And from a societal perspective, what's been going on, the division between... Um, French supporters and especially ultras and um, the, the authorities who run the game, the, the lack of understanding on both sides has, has, has made this an accident waiting to happen, unfortunately. And you look at what, what happened at Nantes this weekend, as, as JJ was describing, those um, vehicles containing the Nice supporters were, were, were set upon by the Nantes fans. And that one of... The, the the drivers get out to try and disperse those those fans. Um, well, they shouldn't be in that position in in, in the first place. Obviously, they they, they shouldn't be armed either. Um, but I think it says everything about the climate of suspicion that there is in these sort of situations in French football at the moment. Now, um, we we heard about the bus from, um, from JJ and we've, we've heard about that before on OTC with Marseille and, and Lyon. We'll come to that because that game was actually played last night in, in a little bit. But you, you had um, a situation at Montpellier a couple of uh, weeks ago where um, some Brest supporters had their, their, their buses' windows put in by some fans coming out of... Uh, um, some some bars, some Montpellier fans coming out of um, some bars, and uh, Michel de Zakarian, the, the the coach of Montpellier, said afterwards, "Well, you know, I think we should we should bring back hard labour. Um, these these guys should be sent to prison and breaking rocks." And it's like, well, I think to me that is a really good example. Not that he should have the answers; he's a football coach, but the authorities have clearly got no answers. That's the problem. That this is something that you could see coming. And this is a situation that they've done nothing about. And so for them to say, okay, we're going to ban away fans for like two weeks. It's, it's just a really, another underlining of how, like we don't have the answers to this. We don't know how to deal with this. Here's this short-term, short-term measure to just try and put a block on things for the moment. But it's like when you had that, that, uh, the, the bus attacks, which you know was was really bad, with um, with with Lyon and Marseille, and obviously poor Fabio Grosso nearly lost an eye. Um, you know it, it was bad, and it could have been even worse. The fact that after that, both the the league and the higher French authorities as as well sort of said, well, we can't really punish Marseille because. It happened away from the ground, and I have sympathy for that. I, you know, I, I don't think punishing a club itself necessarily finds the solution to that problem. And you know, just making the biggest noise is 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 not necessarily doing the the, the right thing. But the fact that they said, "Well, we can't punish the club," so 
you know what? We're just going to rearrange the league. Said we're going to rearrange the game, and it's going to be under exactly the same conditions. So okay, we'll up the security on the bus. We'll give them a bus that hasn't got Olympic A painted on the side. But basically, those players who went through that had to go and do it all again. So they have to go and play the game again, and they have to go and play the game in a full stadium again. And, you know, I understand it's not the fault of those fans in, inside the ground. I understand it's not something immediately under the club's control. But you can't just say, oh, well, let's hope it's better this time. But, but you, you can't do that, can you? But equally, we can question how much control Marseille even have in that particular situation. Because let's not forget yeah. that it was fan pressure that forced Marcelino out and basically saw, you know, Longoria have, you know, one foot out the door at Stade Velodrome before ultimately, uh, you know, ending up staying on. It's, you know, it is sort of an untenable situation. And when a club as big and as influential as Marseille kind of loses control of its fans at, at certain moments, you know, you can understand kind of the argument that the club needs to sort of rein them in uh, a little bit. But this has been years of confrontation, not dialogue, hasn't it? That, that's what the problem is. It, and you can't wait for it to get to its worst point to think, oh, maybe we should think about how we could deal with it. Is the problem that it is the French Football Federation in the first instance trying to deal with the problem rather than the government? Actually, to be honest, this opens up a whole new can of worms as well, because you don't just have the French Football Federation to consider. You have the professional league, the French Football Federation and the French government. And, you know, everybody seems to have a different point of view on it. Uh, you know, and I think what's most worrying is sort of the the very um, scary scenes that we saw at the Champions League final in Paris at Stade de France a couple of years ago. We thought that that might be sort of like the low point uh, you know, for, for sort of fan problems and, uh, and and issues surrounding games in France. And what we've seen recently suggests that, you know, there might, we might even plumb lower depths, uh, you know, if they can't all get on the same page, because that is sort of one of the, the other big issues surrounding French football is that there's no sort of overall sort of, you know, governance that one, one single entity that can sort of enter into dialogue with the French government because you've got sort of professional clubs playing at semi-professional level because the problems do exist there as well. That's overseen by the French Football Federation. You've got the professional clubs, so Ligue 1 and Ligue 2 exclusively overseen by the LFP. Uh, and then you've got, you know, the sort of the French government and the sports minister who, you know, they already have kind of like a bit of a scuffed reputation after the, the mess at Stade de France, uh, you know, and they're looking to sort of reassert, uh, I guess, their their influence, their their control, uh, you know, based off the the back of what was a very humiliating episode for them. So it is a very potent, uh, you know, mix, uh, and and it feels like you know we could be about to to see sort of the the touch paper lit, uh, you know, on what is potentially a more explosive powder keg than we initially thought. It is time, gentlemen, for you both to offer us a game of the week each for us to enjoy this weekend. Who wants to kick off? Yeah, go on then. Uh, it's a biggie in Germany on Saturday, the late game, uh, the half past five UK time uh, between Dortmund and, and Leipzig. Um, the the teams who would be king, I suppose. Um, despite the Harry Kane factor, Bayern can definitely be got at, but is there anyone good enough to get at them? I don't think we'll find that out in this game because I don't think it, either of them are good enough to to really get at Bayern. What we're going to find out is 
who might be coming up to, to next best. Now, Leipzig have been excellent at home if we go back over, over the last few months. And, you know, they are the team that has perhaps got the highest ceiling outside Bayern this season. Um, but A, they've got to go away. And B, there's a load of pressure on Dortmund at the, the, the moment. Um, so they went and got themselves a draw at Leverkusen, which on its own is a, is a good result. Only the second team to take points off them after Bayern this season. Leverkusen's still top and unbeaten. Um, but the way they played quite submissively is something that's caused a lot of debate because you expect Dortmund to be more of a front foot team. And Granit Xhaka said oh, it was an enormous compliment to us how they came here and basically just defended. But that is not something that's sustainable for Dortmund. I mean, what it maybe does make them is a good cup team. Of course, in Edin Terzic's previous spell in charge, they won the DFB Pokal when obviously they had better players in Holland and, and, and Sancho. Um, but they've got past the group stage of the Champions League playing that sort of more sensible football. But it definitely didn't work at Stuttgart this week. Stuttgart, who are flying at the moment, Dortmund lost 2-0 there and were well beaten in the DFB Pokal. So that's another aim for the season over with. And there is this growing sense of how far can this team actually go under Terzic? You know, he's very well liked. He's one of them. He's a real Dortmund guy. But if they're going to become regular title challenges, it's not going to be with him. And there is a sense that they're really underachieving at the moment. If they don't win this game, there's going to be a load more pressure on him. But of course, you don't need to think about that. While you're enjoying some lovely homemade sauerkraut, you might, you might want to start making it on Friday. And you know, it's Christmas time. You want a, you want a full Wurst grill as well, don't you? Get some friends over. Get the glue vine in. Come on. He has set the bar high for you, JJ, uh, to not only match the game of the week, but also the food pairing. Should we start with the game of the week? What would you go for? Oh, the game of the week for me, as the resident Villa fan in this chat, has to be Villa Park Somebody's on Saturday. Aston Villa against Arsenal. I mean, I was confident coming into the City game that we could get a a result uh, and, a, and put in a good performance. I didn't expect such a comprehensive showing uh, on Wednesday night. Uh, you know, and it's 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 huge. You know, you look at sort of the the relatively small gap between the two sides coming into the game. Uh, you know, Villa's fantastic run uh, at Villa Park. You know, off the back of what has been just this incredible transformation under under Unai Emery. Uh, you know, and to top it all off, you know, you'd be sinking your teeth into a into a balty pie. You know how much I, I am a, a huge fan of that when I when I go back to to Villa Park. So. You know, for me, it's going to be hard to beat this weekend. Balti so, pie from Paris. That's what you want. I don't mind. So is it Unai Emery who is the OTC part of your football recommendation? I mean, you know, I I talk up Birmingham as a as a destination to, to as go to as well. As an international. <laughs> I, th I think it's up to you as the host to call them Aston Villa. <laughs> I, bet, I could do better than that. I'm calling Aston Vija. <laughs> so it's the Balti pie. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, it could be any bog standard Villa game and I'd be there for the Balti pie. But the fact that it's Arsenal this weekend, huge game with ramifications at the top of the Premier League, you're not going to be able to keep me away. There you have it. The villains have it. The villains have it. And thank you for listening to On the Continent. Make sure that you join us again tomorrow for Ask OTC, where we'll be answering 
all of your questions about the latest news from the world of European football. And do make sure to subscribe to the podcast app so that you never miss an episode. On the Continent is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.